Support for this podcast and the following message come from Georgetown School of Continuing Studies, offering online degrees designed to fit your schedule. All hours, all Georgetown. Learn more at scs.georgetown.edu. Welcome to Pop Culture Happy Hour. For decades, television has been producing talk shows, funny ones and serious ones, classics and disasters that only last a few weeks. I'm Linda Holmes. And I'm Stephen Thompson. This week, we chat about talk shows with a man who has one. In fact, he made a game show out of a talk show. That's right. Guy Branham is the host and creator of True TV's talk show, The Game Show. He's also the host of the podcast, Pop Rocket. And you can pre-order his book, My Life as a Goddess, right now. Guy, welcome to Pop Culture Happy Hour. Thank you for having me, Linda. I'm sorry I had you guys read so many credits. It's distasteful. <laughs> it's disrespectful of this space, which was the where my podcast came from, this beautiful womb of thoughts. <laughs> well, I just put a little extra English on Goddess for you. That's where I'm coming from. Also with us, of course, as always, is Glenn Weldon of the NPR Arts Desk. Hi, Glenn. Hey, Linda. So before we get into talk shows in general, I want to talk to Guy a little bit about talk show The Game Show. What is talk show The Game Show? Basically, I was just having a conversation with my best friend in law school like 15 years ago. And we came to the idea that there is a right and wrong way to be on a talk show. And this was like the golden age of Leno when life was sort of being slowly pulled out of talk show interviews. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I was like, it would be great if there were a game show where you competed to show that you're good at being on a talk show. And then 10 years later, I was bored one night and sort of confused in my career. And I was like, why don't I just write up the rules of how this would actually work? And then I started doing it as a live show just to see how it would work. And it was fun to see how much gamifying it didn't really change it from what a talk show should be. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I should disclose, I have played talk show, the game show, yes. at a live event in Austin at South by Southwest. I was brought onto the stage after someone else was fired. It was an invocation (laughs) of the emergency guest rule to replace someone who had been kicked off of the show. Yeah, exactly. So I was brought up, I went on stage, and I did my best to hit as many points as I could. You get points for things like name dropping. Yes. A good anecdote, I think. What else? Lying about or obscuring your age, mentioning your pet, bringing the host a gift. Yeah. Like all of those Mm -hmm. things you want to see on a talk Mm -hmm. show. Anything that you can score points for on Talk Show, The Game Show should be something that was part of classic interviews going back to, like, Carson in the 70s, you know? I mean, other than, like, a social media plug that is a more recent innovation. But what you want is to celebrate the classic tropes of what a talk show should be. Well, how do you get kicked off of your show? So we have a yellow card, which is a warning, a penalty box, and then a red card, which actually sends someone off of the show. And, you know, it's, like, usually being boring or, like, sometimes excessive name dropping. One of the things that a a lot of people get confused by is excessive plugging or excessive name dropping is bad play. What you want to be able to do is do enough of it, but do it artfully. Glenn and I were talking about this last night, but, like, talk shows are about a middle path. Mm -hmm. They are about a place in between extremely structured and artful and chaotic. And if you go too far in either of those directions, you need to leave the show. Well, and I believe, I think one of the reasons why I didn't actually win Talk Show, the game show, I mean, for one thing, I did come in late, so I was slightly disadvantaged. But also, 
when I plugged my project, I winked at the audience. Oh. And and that might have just been a little, you know, I mean, I might not have gotten into the complete spontaneity of it. Yeah, well, it's all artifice. This yeah. whole structure, this whole construct is all yeah. artifice. And how much you acknowledge that, different people do it different I, ways. Yeah, I kind of gave him a, a wink and a finger gun. And I think that might have been a little... Over the line. Maybe over the line. Guy and I were, were talking last night about this, and I was reaching for some kind of taxonomy, right? So, like, the people you who come would. on... Always, yeah. The people who come on and do bits versus the people who come on and are completely sincere and open. Those are the two extremes I think you might be talking about. So Steve Martin, whenever he would go on Letterman, would come prepared with a thing he did. Ditto Paul Rudd on Conan every time he shows the clip from Mac and Me. Charles Grodin would go on Letterman with an attitude, a Mm -hmm. tetchy PO'd attitude. Mm -hmm. Nathan Lane, just on Colbert recently, came and just was like pressing play. Bit, 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 spit take. It was fantastic, but it was boxed in. It was very artifice. And then, of course, Albert Brooks back on Carson. On the other hand, you have the people who are sincere and open like Terry Garr on Letterman. You never knew what was going to happen because she just seemed like an exposed nerve. She was Mm -hmm. just there for you. Uh, Same thing with Sandra Bernhardt. Different way. She had an attitude, but she was pressing up against the artifice. And then Tiffany Haddish, of course, on uh, Talk Show, The Game Show, among other places. And what Guy pointed out to me is that it's the dudes who do bits and the women, generally, who are sincere and open. They're both rubbing up against the same artifice, but they're doing it in different ways. Yeah, I think women are used to playing a game. And I also think people of color and queer people are used to understanding that like, there are social rules that we have to be observing, but also you're living within it, where dudes always want to remind you, I get it. I get that this is a thing. (laughs) And in Talk Show the Game Show, I would say, dudes are more likely to be sort of winky and finger gunny about like, did you see that I just plugged a project? Mm -hmm. Where... Tiffany Haddish or Terry Garr comes into an interview and they have a plan. Terry Garr knows that she's going to talk about being arrested for protesting that nuclear power plant, Mm -hmm. but she's just going to get to it in the most natural of ways. Mm -hmm. And it's wonderful to watch Tiffany Haddish tell the same story on three different shows because every time it feels new and she is alive with the pleasure of telling that story. Yeah, and every time it seems like she just thought of it and she really needs to tell you this story. (laughs) And so people want to hear it over and over again. Because to me, with a great talk show guest, there's one kind of great talk show guest who tells great anecdotes, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's kind of the Tiffany Haddish appearance or whatever. And then there are other ones where... It's a moment that seems, you know that in a way it is manufactured, but at the same time it feels not Mm -hmm. like Sonny and Cher on Letterman when they were on, but they were, according to the legend, right, not going to sing. She didn't want, this was long after they were divorced. This was in her, I think this was in her, like, if I could turn back time phase when Mm -hmm. he was a a congressman, maybe a politician, Mm -hmm. maybe mayor at that time. I think probably mayor. Yeah. So this was when, this was long after they were performing together professionally, but they still knew each other and they have a child together. And they came on and they weren't going to sing, but the band kicked up with the beginning of I Got You, Babe. And there's this wonderful moment where Cher is kind of, She's doing this thing where she's like, you jerk. And and eventually they get up and they sing. And it's wonderful because they had such a weird relationship when I was growing up. Every time you kind of saw them together, you could sense that they are connected and not. So this moment was so unusual and unexpected and special and spontaneous. And I don't know where else it would have happened. 
Yeah, I think I think conversely, you have certain talk show guests who have famously kind of pushed back against the host to the point where it creates an enormous amount of chaos. You mentioned Charles Grodin, Glenn. Mm-hmm. I was thinking of Harvey Pekar oh, sure. uh, on, on Letterman, particularly like in the late 80s. Harvey Pekar was a, a comic book writer who did American Splendor and later Our Cancer Year with his wife, Joyce Brabner. And he's a funny, interesting, smart guy, but he had no idea why he was on Letterman. (laughs) And a lot of the audience had no idea why he was on Letterman. He was an odd, not particularly telegenic guy who did not care about any of the artifice that you're talking about. And so you wind up with exchanges like this one about NBC's uh, relationship with General Electric. Oh, good. Why you defended G? That was really, I thought that was really dumb because, you know, it made you look like a shield for G. And I was really surprised to hear you do that. I, you know, I, I like... First of, all, you, first of all, that? Harvey, what you're saying is not true. Second of all, this is not is, the place to say it. And if you want to continue is. talking if about I, this, look, Dave, go somewhere care. else, because look, Dave, we're not going to talk I'm, about it on the Dave, show. I signed, Harvey, one, I signed the Harvey, no, no, Harvey, Harvey, no, no, Harvey, one, you're TV, wrong. By the way. What you're saying is Wait, wrong. I said you looked like. I didn't what you're say saying you is wrong, Harvey. So I said it looked like you were shit. That's why I don't understand, because you wanted laughs that night, and I got you your laughs. See, I had it planned. I figured if oh, I Harvey, you've never rent. planned anything in your life. Oh, no, that's wrong. What, what did you that's plan? Your wardrobe? <laughs> what are they referring to there that had happened? So basically, Picar was very critical and had been publicly very critical of the fact that, that Letterman, being on NBC, had this relationship with GE and had been, as Picar saw it, soft on GE. And so Picar saw the opportunity to be on the show to criticize controversies surrounding GE and, and basically saying Letterman hadn't been critical enough. And what you hear in that clip is this constantly shifting power imbalance. Mm-hmm. But it's ebbing and flowing, and the audience is kind of on Letterman's side. It's Letterman's show. But you see at various points each of them kind of grabbing onto all the attention. And it, it is riveting television, even if it ultimately naturally devolves into jokes. Right, because it is a conversation, an actual conversation between people who don't know where it's going to end. As opposed to what you were talking about, the, the heyday of Leno, when the third lead from NCIS or whatever would come <laughs> on and tell their slightly racist story about her trip to Japan. Like, that that doesn't have any lifeblood in it. Right. Yeah. Um, this is why I always used to like Celebrity Poker Showdown, because celebrities would come on. So good. You would see how they are. You'd see what kind of person they are. And that was something that was true for that show. It, I don't find it to be true in the felonization of well, talk shows that's where beca- they play games. That's because there was a different power structure that was going on. How well you're doing in the game that allowed Nicole Sullivan from Mad TV yep. to be more important than Ben Affleck. Right. And that was beautiful. And the trouble with the Fallon games is that Every time they're playing charades, every celebrity has been prepped to give right. two written wrong answers and then the right answer, and it just, you know, there's there's no magic to it. I'm not proud of Harvey Pekar for recognizing that there is a contrivance to talk shows. I kind of get mad at people who are, like, a bit too self-congratulatory about that. But at the same time, I love Bobcat Goldthwait going on Leno and setting a chair on fire (laughs) because it was just like active protest against like the Picard things seems a little self-congratulatory where to me Bobcat Goldthwait is a little more saying like 
this is lifeless. Let's turn this into something. But part of what's interesting about the Picar stuff, though, is that the stakes are so different for him than they are for virtually anybody else who's on a talk show. And I think that is inherently interesting. He genuinely does not care if he's asked back, and yet they keep asking him back yeah. because it's good television. So he's kind of brought in to be their dancing monkey, and the fact that he's pushing back against it, yeah, I, I think there's a certain amount of self-congratulatory qualities to, like, I'm sticking it to the man here. Mm-hmm. But it's still interesting it's that tension. I mean, when we talk about what makes a good talk show guest and a bad talk show guest, for me, it's always, I mean, you said boring right up front. It's that that come out there and tell a story, you know, like I heard you went on a trip to Belize. Yeah. I stepped mm-hmm. on a jellyfish, but whatever, you know. International <laughs> travel gets you three points. Right. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And so, so anything that is kind of a chaos agent, I'm going to kind of perk up because I find most talk show interview segments so boring. Yeah. yeah. And I think another thing about Letterman specifically is that it was always thrilling to me to try to figure out when David Letterman was legitimately delighted Mm -hmm. and when David Letterman was legitimately angry Mm -hmm. because he played up both of those things in, in different ways. There was a kind of a... I'm delighted, but it's a put on. And there was an I'm irritated, but it's a put on. But then there were also legitimate examples of both. And it could be difficult to tell what you were dealing with. And one of the things I find is interesting about the Picar thing, also about his encounter with Crispin Glover Mm -hmm. uh, early in his career when he was sort of kicking and acting up, is that... You can tell that those are real emotions coming up in Letterman, real irritation. That's real. I don't like this on my show. And I always found that to be kind of interesting. You mentioned the Fallonization of shows. And to me, at the time that Jimmy Fallon's late night show started, not when he took over The Tonight Show, but when he started at 1230, I was surprised how much I enjoyed it. And it was partly because... You were very much in this kind of person comes on, does interview, plugs, movie, goes off. And the fact that they were doing things like lip syncing and playing games and things, I found delightful. But the more institutionalized that becomes, the more that becomes then what late night talk shows are. And Corden comes on and he does that. Mm -hmm. Then all of a sudden, what I find thrilling is the fact that Seth Meyers likes to have writers on, you know, and it's whatever you find thrilling is whatever you're not getting. And I think talk shows are especially like that. With Fallon, it's so interesting because I think at the heart of what he tries to do with guests is he wants to give them an opportunity to shine. Mm -hmm. He wants to put them in a situation where they... They can put their best foot forward and just kind of be their best selves that they can be. And like, look, here's another side of me where I'm delightful. The problem is that when you do that, first of all, with polarizing guests, suddenly it feels very toothless and not relevant. Mm -hmm. So that's the challenge, because I agree with you. I have really liked Fallon's kind of knockabout, good-natured, affable charm. It's just tricky because there are situations where that's not the appropriate way to deal with a guest. One of the things that was glorious about Letterman is that he would let people be delightful by pushing up against them. Terry Garr, who is this bubbling thing of wonderfulness, he would always be contentious with. He was Mm -hmm. so frequently in his best interviews, he's in some sort of fight with someone. He's in a fight with them about whether they're flirting with him right or not, or he's in a fight with them about how they came out. And it's just such a good-natured tussle But not everybody can do that. And the people that we have now, just because of the increasing role of publicists in our world, 
they're not allowed to do that. And so they have to figure out some way of being nice but still getting something organic. I'm glad that we are talking about the host because the infrastructure is set in stone. It's that card with the four questions, always the same four questions. How is this night different from any other night? The four questions that you ask. And what has to happen is that we have to get off that, beyond that in some way. And that's why the interaction is so much about the host as much as anything. Letterman was a terrible interviewer, but he was a great host. Mm -hmm. So, Guy, can you talk about, like, you on your show, you have the card. You know what you're going to say. You have the points you're going to hit. Your producers talked to them before. And yet you are not invisible, but you are going out of your way to shine a light on the person that's in front of you. It's weird because I'm a stand-up comic and I want to say the funny things, but the best thing you can do is get out of the way and just let them do stuff. And there's also the thing of it's not until you ask that first question that you understand whether they have an encyclopedic memory of how they were pre-produced and are going to go through it with magical skill or if they are just going to bounce around and work in their own way and just have to react to that. And one of the most interesting things about learning about a talk show from the other side of the desk was understanding the value of down-panel interaction. Mm -hmm. Like, so many of the shows have gotten rid of it. Just those moments when, like, there are three people on stage and they are having a conversation and I'm not part of it and just being like, this is good TV and I'm not having to do anything. Yeah. And it's great. And I, I really miss that because so few of the shows just let everybody be out there right. now. Yeah, they used to, that used to be, I think, particularly with Johnny Carson, that that was very standard. They would just stack everybody kind of up. They would accumulate people. They would stack everybody up. And, and now that's, that's, as you say, very rare. Can right. I tell the story of my favorite down panel interaction of all time? Of mm-hmm. course. It was I think the, so. It was the Mike Douglas show. Oh, yeah. And Toadie Fields, classic. <laughs> Classic comedian, the Joan Rivers before Joan Rivers, is on the show, and then she moves down, and Gene Simmons of Kiss comes out. (laughs) Oh, and he sticks out that tongue, and he shows you how terrible and scary he is. And she says, wouldn't it be funny if under all that you were just a nice Jewish boy? (laughs) And he says, actually, I am. And she says, I know, honey, you can't hide the hook. (laughs) It should be clear that I am Jewish and I'm allowed to say that. But it was just one of those things where, like, Mike Douglas wasn't a good talk show host. Like, but, like, just having these two people, Toadie Fields and Gene Simmons should (laughs) never be in the same place together. And the minute they do, like, the one who's your aunt takes complete domination of the situation. Mm -hmm. That's a talk show. Yeah, it's true. I want to talk about Johnny Carson. Because Johnny Carson, you know, had his show for such a long time that to a lot of people for a long time, Johnny Carson kind of was the late night Mm -hmm. talk show. But he had very different interactions with different people. And it's kind of widely believed that his last show is the one that had Bette Midler and Robin Williams. But that's actually his second to last show. His last show was much more kind of of a wrap up and a good night and everything. But you could see like when Robin Williams came on Johnny Carson's show, he was just talk about on like relentlessly on. Whereas Carson's relationship with Bette Midler was so tender in this way. Right. Well, he was able to occupy this position with so many people of, I helped make your career, Mm -hmm. you know? And she definitely treasured that and really appreciated it. And his tenderness also allows her to bring out the fullness of her skill sets. There is, it's really wonderful when people are able to come out and give you 
the whole game. I mean, the fact mm-hmm. that, like, so famously, she sang the You Made Me Watch You song, for which she won an Emmy. Like, to mm-hmm. me, the best of what a talk show guest can be is exemplified by Bette Midler winning an Emmy for that. She also, though, she got Johnny Carson to sing Here Comes That Rainy Day yeah. with her, which was not my image of him. Mm-hmm. My image right. of him was more kind of, it was a little bit more brittle than that. Yeah. Yeah. And she brought out this side of him that was actually very sweet and, you know, they had this oddly warm relationship that I that I don't completely trust, but that I always find entirely charming when yeah. I watch that clip. Both uh, Letterman and Carson used Tony Randall as the go-to replacement guest, last-minute replacement guest, mm-hmm. and he was incredibly good-natured about that. And whenever I think of Tony Randall on a talk show, I think of him on Carson talking about the importance of good diction and letting Carson be so bored and, <laughs> and go off on how uninteresting everything out of Tony Randall's mouth was. And mm-hmm. and they both were having a great time. That's an interaction which is filled with artifice, but it's legitimately charming. Yeah. I was watching the, the documentary I Am Not Your Negro about James Baldwin not long ago, and I was reminded that when Dick Cavett had a talk show, yeah. you would actually have Dick Cavett come out and James Baldwin would talk about your down panel interaction. Right. You would get James Baldwin and somebody else, mm-hmm. and they would get into a deep intellectual, thoughtful debate. And that was where you got a significant amount of the archival footage that exists of James Baldwin speaking from the heart about his James Baldwin-ness comes from the Dick Cavett show. Like, right. and We that's... used to let Gore Vidal and Truman Capote fight with each other. Are you? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is one of the reasons why, and it's not quite the same thing, but this is one of the reasons why I like the fact that Seth Meyers, as I said, is so devoted to having writers on, not just popular writers, although that, but also they've been very good on that show about including LGBT writers and writers of color and novelists and nonfiction writers, because The Daily Show has obviously brought on a lot of nonfiction writers. But Seth Meyers loves to bring on novelists who aren't famous, which is where you get some of those really Interesting. Jade Chang is a better interview than the third lead of NCIS. Exactly. And I think before we go, I want to talk about stakes because Stephen talked about stakes. And I think one of the reasons why the stakes are different, a 1230 show always has lower stakes than an 1130 show. It always feels like. So when Fallon was a 1230 show, his show was weirder than it is as an 1130 show, I think. Letterman originally was a 1230 guy. Mm-hmm. Craig Ferguson's 1230 yeah. show I thought was excellent and yeah, really agreed. strange and funny and compassionate and he did a different kind of monologue and so those 1230 shows I think when the stakes are lower for the host you get more experimental agreed. I don't know kinds of stuff. On the subject of stakes, do you guys prefer a guest with something to prove or a guest with nothing to prove? Oh wow, probably nothing to prove. Yeah. Yeah. Um Although, I mean, I guess when you say nothing to prove, you mean maybe a person at the top of their power, which is not really what I mean. Maybe I do want a grasping, desperate person. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think I want grasping and desperate, in part because I find almost all interviews with political figures on talk shows to be desperately boring. (laughs) So dull. I actually, I got to sit in on a Daily Show taping years and years ago, and the guest, I was like, oh, who's the guest going to be? And it was Congressman Harold Ford Jr., Uh who is such a stiff. (laughs) And... 
it, it was it was just he was one of our handsomest members of Congress at the <laughs> yeah, time. Absolutely, mm-hmm. very very handsome man. So dull. <laughs> yeah. Well, they're they are not allowed to be terribly no. spontaneous. And when I say allowed, I mean under the system that they've involved themselves in. Mm-hmm. When you can't have spontaneity, it's hard to have a good talk show guest. Having somebody like Tiffany Haddish on her girls trip like press tour mm-hmm. who was establishing her place in our world of celebrities and having her come out like a filly who is ready for the race, like um, knowing exactly what to do and proving herself is so wonderful. And like George Clooney telling a story about pulling a prank can be fun, but he's also done it so many times. Right. And mm-hmm. I would really like to put forward that Julia Louis-Dreyfus is the complete picture. Oh, wow. Julia Louis-Dreyfus she always makes you feel like she's excited to be there. From her billionaire nine Emmys <laughs> life, she always makes whatever her story is feel relevant relatable. and relatable. Yep. And when all else is already on the table, she's still got her weird environmentally sensitive house to talk about. Mm-hmm. Like, everything is there in a Julia Louis-Dreyfus interview. That's a great pick. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. a great pick. I'll go with that. I like it. All right. Well, I want to hear what all of you think about what makes a good talk show guest. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PCHH or tweet at us at PCHH. When we come back, we're going to sit down with Guy for our favorite segment, What is Making Us Happy? So come right back. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Hulu. With the largest streaming library full of your favorite reality TV shows, Hulu is the home for reality TV's biggest fans. Catch all the drama, all the tears, all the heartbreak, all the competition. Because Hulu has your reality TV. Start your free trial today. Learn more at Hulu.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Pocket Casts. Are you a power podcast listener? Then try Pocket Casts Plus, made for podcast fans who want even more from their podcasting app. Pocket Casts Plus has more ways to listen, access to cloud storage, and more customization options. And they're offering a free three-month trial to elevate your listening experience. Find out more at pocketcasts.com NPR. Welcome back to Pop Culture Happy Hour. It's time for our favorite segment of this week and every week. What is making us happy this week? Steve and Thompson, what is making you happy this week, sir? I have read a lot of satire. I have read a lot of coverage of NPR's Tiny Desk Concerts. Mm-hmm. Rarely have I seen those two converge. Mm-hmm. There's a delightful recent article on the website Noisy, run by, by Vice, with the headline, NPR's Tiny Desk is actually not tiny at all. Mm-hmm. Now, that joke... I have heard before. Mm -hmm. I hear that joke every time the tour group comes through (laughs) NPR and somebody says, well, that's not actually a tiny desk at all. What is so great about this particular article by Dan Ozzie is it's maybe the most rigorously researched. (laughs) And also, I can say from from knowing the subject very well, probably the most accurate (laughs) accounting I have ever read of how the tiny desk works. It's very, very funny. There's this wonderful sight gag where they're trying to judge the space's height with the musician Jason Isbell, uh, who has said in some other interview, which they have researched, he has said he is 6'1". And so they draw like what they imagine his torso and legs to be, (laughs) like under where the desk cuts him off, and then is like, relating the desk in size to like it's the size of roughly one and a half Jason Isbell's it's so funny it's so nicely done very very well written and I will tell you as somebody who has read a lot about this subject so so 
accurate, which just makes my heart smile. Thank you very much, Stephen Thompson. Glenn Weldon, what is making you happy this week, sir? I recently turned 50, and uh, when you reach a milestone like that, you'd start doing things you didn't do before, like bathing in the blood of the innocent. Uh, to rejuvenate the skin, uh, random weeping. That's a thing that, uh, mm-hmm. that's new. I also did a very cliche thing, which is I went back to an album I used to listen to a lot in my early 20s just to see if it held up. I just all of a sudden remembered it, and I thought, is it on iTunes? It can't possibly be on iTunes, and it's on iTunes. It is Red Hot and Blue. Do you guys remember? Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay. Are you kidding me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Red uh. Hot and Blue came out in 1990. It's a compilation album, one of the first AIDS benefits, and there's 20 songs on it, mm-hmm. right? And it's basically contemporary artists, 1990, contemporary artists covering songs by Cole Porter. Most of it's awesome. Is there Aztec camera? Yes, there's Aztec camera. <laughs> do you have to kind of plow through a fine young cannibals set or two? You do. But you've got Nana Cherry doing I've Got You Under My Skin. You Do Something to Me by Sinead, which sounds exactly like you think it's going to sound, but it's still pretty cool. <laughs> too Darn Hot from Marasure. From This Moment On, Jimmy Somerville. It will perhaps not surprise you that Katie Lang throws herself into <laughs> So In Love. Yep. The late, great Christian McCall doing Miss O's Regrets. A really great cover of Down in the Depths on the 90th Floor by Lisa Stanfield. (laughs) That song needs more. Mm -hmm. That's a great song. It's a great rendition. But the reason, the reason to get this album, the reason to right now download it and look for the video is Debbie Harry and Iggy Pop doing Well Did You Ever, Uh the video directed by Alex Cox, who directed Repo Man and Sid and Nancy, and it shows. It's so (laughs) much fun, and it made me feel briefly less than ancient I've so that's been, red hot plus blue i have never loved you more are you are you positive you're gay <laughs> well i mean you know not a cherry I, well, <laughs> at least lisa stanford you didn't even mention the jody watley yeah. after mm. you who which yeah. i also really love uh-huh. legitimately really love I could talk about this all day. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, Glenn Weldon, thank now, you so much. Now, the Red Hot organization has kept putting out those yeah. compilations. They're not necessarily capturing the exact magic of that one, but there are a bunch of really, really good ones that are, if nothing else, just as overstuffed yeah, as Red Hot. exactly. Oh, gosh. Exactly. Oh, Glenn Weldon, thank you so much. <laughs> Guy Branham, what is making you happy this week? I am not a person who acquires new music that much. But a couple of years ago, I became aware of a British pop group called The Feeling, and I really enjoyed them. And then out of nowhere, a couple of days ago, was like, I wonder what that guy has made in the past couple of years. And the answer was Dan Gillespie Sells of The Feeling had just opened a West End musical that he wrote based on a BBC documentary about a 16-year-old drag queen. The musical is called Everybody's Talking About Jamie. And it is very Dear Evan Hansen-y. It is very, like, you know, kid trying to find his place in the world, but with the luscious pop sensibilities of Dan Gillespie Sells. The two guys who wrote it have never written a musical before, and it shows in the weirdest of ways. Sometimes it is too musically, and sometimes it really is just, like, a pop song you could hear anywhere. So can we listen to a clip of it? To the promised land And you won't understand That is very dear And it's the gym show Cause you met so slow And I sort of slow And I'm go, go, go I have very conventional and boring taste in music. (laughs) One of the things I really enjoyed about it is that the musical really embraces the way that drag is about recentering narrative and is about people who are not part of narrative making themselves 
the center and and so many comics have jokes about like how self-absorbed drag queens are and all of that but it really is a beautiful story of this person who feels like they don't matter so needs to tell the world why they do it's very fun and if a little too life-affirming get over yourself (laughs) (laughs) that is wonderful thank you very much give me the title again everybody's talking about jamie nice thank you So I am going to go real simple this week with a podcast that has made its debut in the last few weeks. It is from Vox, and it is called Today Explained. It is their version of a daily news podcast, but it is not a super breaking news kind of thing. It's more of a things that people are thinking about right now kind of thing. It is coming out daily. It's hosted by friend of the show, Sean Ramosfarm. And they they had an episode that was about the specific process that you have to go through to launch a nuclear weapon, which is terrifying to hear about, but also useful and valuable. And then they had an episode where they talked about the significance of Black Panther, which, you know, is a different kind of thing. And again, they're not breaking news podcasts, but it's really creative and interesting. I think Sean's an excellent host. I've thought that for a long time. And I think it's really promising. It's a good addition to kind of the universe of daily podcasts. Again, it's called Today Explained from Vox. Like it very much. Listen to it in the morning while I'm doing my face. That's my plan. <laughs> all right. And that brings us to the end of our show. You can follow all of us on Twitter. You can find me at NPR Monkey C. You can find Stephen at I Dislike Stephen. You can follow Glenn at G.H. Weldon and Guy at Guy Branham. Again, Guy is the host of Talk Show, The Game Show. He's also the host of the podcast Pop Rocket and the author of the upcoming book, My Life as a Goddess. It's too many credits. I'm sorry, Linda. (laughs) It's perfect. You're perfect just as you are. You can find our producer, Jessica Reedy, at Jessica underscore Reedy, and our producer, Emeritus, and music director, Mike Katzif, at Mike Katzif, K-A-T-Z-I-F. Mike's band, Hello Come In, provides our in and out music, which you are tapping your foot to right now. So thanks to all of you for being here. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for listening. We will see you right back here next week. Hello, just dropping in to remind you about On Point, the NPR show where we take you behind the headlines. On Point talks with newsmakers and real people about issues that matter most. Listen to On Point now on NPR One or wherever you listen to podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message come from the NPR Wine Club, where every bottle tells a story and NPR shows become wines like Weekend Edition Cabernet Sauvignon. Available to adults 21 years or older. Learn more at nprwineclub.org.